Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. This past year, I watched the TV series Mad Men, which depicts life in the 1960s and 70s in America, especially focusing on gender dynamics. And I thought that one of the most striking bits of dialogue, and it wasn't really emphasized, so at a a different time in my life, it might have just gone right past me without me even noticing. But it was this scene that was set in about 1965 in New York City when the civil rights movement was just starting to really pick up steam. And a woman, a white woman, is talking about how she is not allowed to join certain clubs or be served in certain restaurants or get a room at a hotel or get a credit card. And many jobs aren't available to her. And even in the job she currently has, she's paid far less than her male counterparts all because she's a woman. And she's saying this to a group of men, male co-workers. And one of them says in response, in a really jeering, mocking way, he says, what, you want a women's march? And the show does such a great job of creating the world that you can feel how to them that just sounded utterly preposterous, a women's march. There hadn't been demonstrations for women's rights since the days of the suffragettes. And as we learned in Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, those feminists, the suffragettes, were looked down on in the 1950s and 60s. But so as a viewer, you also have this sense of dramatic irony, realizing, oh my gosh, the women's movement was about to start, but they didn't even know it yet. So with that historical context in mind, that the women's movement was coming in the 60s, but they didn't know it. We're going to start today's episode with a recording from 1970, when that idea of a women's march had become a reality, and thousands of women were taking to the streets to demand equal rights. I wouldn't have admitted the equality and inequality in my own life, even though I was continually discriminated against in journalism. Journalism, which allows women to write about women and black people to write about black people and keeps the editorial decisions in white male hands. I would not have admitted my own inequality, even though I had been refused apartments by landlords who would not rent to women and refused access to supposedly public places. I would not admit it even though I had been refused full participation in politics. Now, thanks to the spirit of equality in the air and to the work of many of my more foresighted sisters, I no longer accept society's judgment that my group is second class. That was Gloria Steinem in a speech at a Women's Liberation March in about 1970. And today we are going to read a similar speech by Steinem called Living the Revolution. But before we start that discussion, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Amy Powell. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for joining me and um, reading this and discussing it. Amy and I have been friends since about 2011, I think. I was trying to remember when we met, and I think it was about Mm -hmm. 2011. And we we met because we were at the same school and in the same church congregation, and our kids attended um, Spanish Immersion Elementary School together. And a fun fact about these two Amys is that um, we're both 
we both have done a lot of teaching. Um, and Amy was my daughter Lindsay's favorite math teacher in all of elementary school. You were her math teacher for about a year, I think, when she was in fifth yep. grade, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I ta- taught your son uh, when I was volunteering in fourth grade in literature circles. And so we we taught each other's kids, which was super fun. And a- Amy, I just have benefited so much from my friendship with you. I feel like you are so wise and always even tempered when I get riled up and my voice starts like echoing throughout the California hills as we're running together and you are just so even tempered and rational and um, I just respect you immeasurably and I just am so grateful you're my friend and I'm super excited to discuss the text with you. So um, could we start by having you talk a little bit about yourself, like just where you're from and maybe your family and kind of some things that make you, you. Sure. I'm happy to do that. So I, let's see, I was born in California, but was mostly, uh, raised in Salt Lake city. We moved there when I was pretty young. I grew up in a big family. I have one brother and five sisters and I, absolutely loved being part of that big family energy. It was uh, it was great for me. I was a middle child and I loved it. It was great. Um, I still am a middle child. So I was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon Church or the LDS Church. And I'm active in my local congregation. And let's see, my parents both have professional degrees. They both worked in their fields of study. Uh, still work in their fields of study to some degree. And to me, when I was a kid, my mom just seemed to always be around and to be readily available to me. (laughs) But in fact, she worked quite a lot in both paying and non-paying positions. Um, She's a very accomplished musician. And while I was growing up, she was teaching and performing. She was working on really big music projects. Uh, She was involved in a lot of really great things. Um, Her job afforded her some flexibility. I mean, it was a pretty great job. Um, She could do some of her teaching and practicing from our home. But she also needed to um, go to committee meetings. And she did have a lot of rehearsals to go to. So I got to witness my mom engaged in all of these worthwhile activities, both inside our home and outside our home. And it really had a big influence on my understanding of a woman's role in society. And she certainly provided an example to me of balancing children with career. So I grew up believing that that was doable with some planning and a supportive partner. Um, So both of my parents strongly encouraged me to attain uh, higher education degrees. I never considered not going to college. I can't even imagine bringing that up with my parents. Um, I completed my undergraduate and graduate degrees in Boston. I studied speech and language pathology, but I almost switched over to psychology because I found that subject so fascinating. And um, I was lucky that there were plenty of ways that my psychology instruction could and did inform my speech and language practice. So that coursework was very well utilized. Um, 
let's see. While I was in school, I met a really great guy and we got married after we graduated. We stayed in Boston for several more years. Uh, we were working and doing a bit more schooling. And then we moved to California. And we have two terrific boys. And they are actually young men now, which mm. is, I'm still wrapping my head around that. <laughs> no, they're so big. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It is. Yeah, it's weird. Um, so along the way, I've tried out a few different career paths besides my speech and language work. Um, they've all been part-time because I wanted to be around while my kids were growing up and I was really fortunate enough. I was fortunate enough to have that option. So I was really grateful for that. I found a lot of joy and stimulation being at home with my kids. And I also found a lot of joy and stimulation in learning new skills and trying them out in various jobs. Um, I have just a great husband who has been extremely supportive of that and whatever I wanted to try. And he's provided me space and time to explore my interests. So I'm really grateful for that equal partnership that we have. Mm, yeah, he's such a great guy. This That was fun, Amy, for me to hear like you tell your story that way and realize um, it's just so neat. Each person that comes to you know, really any conversation reads a book or has a conversation with a friend, but we have our own, the lenses that we see through are so informed by our life experience. And, mm. um, I'm, I was just thinking about how, you know, your psychology classes that you took in college and in grad school, like those come up in our conversations when we're talking all the time, like things that mm -hmm. you learned in psychology, that's like, Oh, that's where I learned that. Or <laughs> having your mom be a, a, musician and like such an accomplished musician and having all your siblings and just, it's just so neat how um, I've benefited even from the wisdom that you bring from all of those past experiences. So thanks for sharing all of those. That was cool to hear them. Um, okay. So the other question I like to ask is about um, the podcast or like the term breaking down patriarchy. Um, and kind of what that means when you hear that term or answer that however you like. Okay. Um, when I hear breaking down patriarchy, I visualize the deconstruction of this big brick and mortar building. Hmm. So this building is rigid, it's solid, it's heavy, and it's strongly adhered together. Hmm. Um it takes time to break that building down, but it can be done. Just it takes some time and energy. I believe it requires unlearning to undo mm. the patriarchy mindset. And Steinem actually mentions this in the speech, this unlearning, and it's for men and women. So it's everybody needs to do that unlearning. Um, once that old building is down, then there has to be a period of rebuilding. And that mm -hmm. means you're constructing a new foundation, a new footprint. You've got new rooms. They have new purposes. And the rebuilding is planned and approved and completed by all of the people who will use it. So there's a mm -hmm. lot of negotiating. There's a lot of listening. There's a lot of cooperating to get this building up. And when we have that new building, it's stronger 
and it's roomier. Maybe it has like flex space in it and it's built to last. So that new learning can happen during that building process Mm. through like negotiating and talking and learning, listening. And it can also happen inside the building itself once the building is completed. So, and that new learning involves everyone, not just one class or one gender or one race. There's no exclusions. And everyone has the capacity to teach, learn, lead, and love in that building. That was so beautiful. I am kind of speechless, Amy. I, um, a lot of people, a lot of men have asked, have been kind of fearful of this process. Yeah. And a couple of, yeah, you, you moved me to tears, Amy. I'm like wiping tears off my cheeks. Um, but I've kind of, some of, some of them have asked like what, have been concerned about unintended consequences or concerned about like, well, what are we building instead? And I just Mm. want, I want to refer everyone to what you just said. That was such a beautiful and inspiring um, vision. And I loved the metaphor of the building. We've talked a lot about deconstructing, but not about what we want to construct in its place. And I, I'm just so moved by what you just described. So um, thank you so much for that. Oh, sure. Um, Okay, so into today's text. Um, This happened in a really fortuitous way. It was really fun on one of our runs. We were talking about the the TV series, Mrs. America, which you remember, Amy, you watched it and you said, oh, you have to watch it, um, Mm -hmm. about the battle over the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s. And so you were talking to me, you, you brought up like, you know, the, the major players and everything. And, and one of the people was Gloria Steinem. And meanwhile, I had been thinking that I needed to add to the reading list um, an iconic Steinem speech to kind of represent that part of the second wave of feminism in the 1970s. And so it just worked out perfectly that we kind of both were, we both had Steinem on our mind at the same time. So let's start out by giving getting our listeners acquainted with Gloria Steinem. She's such a fascinating woman and a cultural icon. Um, but I didn't really know that much about her in terms of like her life, or I don't think I'd ever read any of her speeches either. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on Steinem, kind of like the the big names that we've done in the past, like Mary Wollstonecraft or Sojourner Truth or Polly Murray, where we spend just a little bit more time on the bio. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll take turns doing that. So Amy, can you start us off with like the beginning of Steinem's life? Sure. Okay. Um, Gloria Steinem was born on March 25th, 1934 in Toledo, Ohio, the daughter of Ruth and Leo Steinem. Her mom was Presbyterian, mostly of German and some Scottish descent. Her father was Jewish, the son of immigrants from Germany and Poland. Her paternal grandmother, Pauline Perlmutter Steinem, was a suffragette who worked for women's rights in many different capacities and also rescued many members of her family from the Holocaust. The Steinems lived and traveled in a trailer, from which Leo carried out his trade as a roaming antiques dealer. Before Steinem was born, her mother Ruth, then age 34, had a nervous breakdown, which left her unable to walk, trapped in delusional fantasies that occasionally turned violent. She changed from someone that Steinem described as 
energetic, fun-loving, and book-loving into someone who was afraid to be alone, who could not hang on to reality long enough to hold a job, and who could rarely concentrate enough to read a book. Ruth spent long periods in and out of sanatoriums for people dealing with mental illness. Steinem was 10 years old when her parents finally separated in 1944. Her father went to California to find work while she and her mother continued to live together in Toledo. Steinem did not attribute her parents' divorce to male chauvinism on her father's part. She claims to have understood and never blamed him for the breakup. Nevertheless, the impact of these events had a formative effect on her personality. While her father, a traveling salesman, had never provided much financial stability to the family, his exit aggravated their situation. Steinem concluded that her mother's inability to hold on to a job was evidence of general hostility towards working women. She also concluded that the general apathy of doctors toward her mother emerged from a similar anti-woman prejudice. Years later, Steinem described her mother's experience as pivotal to her understanding that women lacked social and political equity. Steinem attended Smith College, from which she received her A.B. magna cum laude. In 1957, Steinem had an abortion. The procedure was performed by Dr. John Sharp, a British physician, when abortion was still illegal. Years later, Steinem dedicated her memoir, My Life on the Road, to him. She wrote, Dr. John Sharp of London, who in 1957, a decade before physicians in England could legally perform an abortion for any reason other than the health of the woman, took the considerable risk of referring for an abortion a 22-year-old American on her way to India knowing only that she had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, You must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. Steinem's first serious assignment as a journalist was a 1962 article about the way in which women are forced to choose between a career and marriage. This article is, as listeners will remember, on the same topic as The Feminine Mystique, and was published a year before Frieden's book was published. In 1963, while working on an article for Huntington Hartford's Show magazine, Steinem went undercover as a Playboy bunny at the New York Playboy Club. The article, published in 1963 as A Bunny's Tale, featured a photo of Steinem in bunny uniform and detailed how women were treated at those clubs. And you can still see that photo online if you look it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fun to look it up. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Steinem has maintained that she is proud of the work she did publicizing the exploitative working conditions of the bunnies, and especially the sexual demands made of them, which were barely legal. But for a brief period after the article was published, Steinem was unable to land other assignments. In her words, this was because I had now become a bunny, and it didn't matter why. Steinem was often referred to as the pretty one in the feminist movement, and some tried to dismiss her because of her looks. 
as if a woman couldn't be pretty and an activist or pretty and a journalist. Maybe her looks worked in her favor in some cases, perhaps to get in the door with politicians or others in seats of power. But I would imagine that was due more to her intelligence and wit, her skills of persuasion and listening, than to her being attractive. In 1969, Steinem covered an abortion speakout for New York Magazine, which was held in a church basement in Greenwich Village, New York. She felt what she called a big click at the speakout, and later said she didn't begin her life as an active feminist until that day. As she recalled, abortion is supposed to make us a bad person, but I must say I never felt that. I used to sit and try and figure out how old the child would be, trying to make myself feel guilty, but I never could. Speaking for myself, I knew it was the first time I had taken responsibility for my own life. I wasn't going to let things happen to me. I was going to direct my life, and therefore it felt positive. But still, I didn't tell anyone, because I knew that out there it wasn't. She also said, in later years, if I'm remembered at all, it will be for inventing a phrase like reproductive freedom. As a phrase, it includes the freedom to have children or not to, so it makes it possible for us to make a coalition. In 1969, she published an article, After Black Power, Women's Liberation, which brought her to national fame as a feminist leader. As such, she campaigned for the Equal Rights Amendment, testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee in its favor in 1970. And we're going to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment on our very next episode. So that will be exciting. She was frustrated already in 1970 that it hadn't passed. So imagine how frustrated she is now. Oof. Um, that same year in 1970, she published her essay on a utopia of gender equality, which was called What It Would Be Like If Women Win in Time magazine. On July 10th, 1971, Steinem was one of over 300 women who founded the National Women's Political Caucus, including such notables as Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan, and Shirley Chisholm. As a co-convener of the caucus, she delivered the speech addressed to the women of America, stating in part, quote, this is no simple reform. It really is a revolution. Sex and race, because they are easy and visible differences, have been the primary ways of organizing human beings into superior and inferior groups and into the cheap labor on which this system still depends. We are talking about a society in which there will be no roles other than those chosen or those earned. We are really talking about humanism, end quote. In 1972, she co-founded the feminist-themed magazine Ms. alongside several other founding editors. Its 300,000 test copies sold out nationwide in eight days. And within weeks, Ms. Magazine had received 26,000 subscription orders and over 20,000 reader letters. And if listeners want to look at the cover of the first episode of Ms. Magazine, you can see it on our Facebook or Instagram accounts. And that's at Be Down Patriarchy, where we post visuals and other supplemental content all the time. And yeah, if you want to hop on there this week, then you can see the first cover of Ms. Magazine. Um, and also, it's worth talking about the title, Ms. Um, I don't know that I'd ever really thought about it, honestly, um, until 
just a few years ago, you know, I you hear your whole life like some women are miss and some are misses, but then there's this weird in-between thing. And <laughs> and that was a, a really political, very carefully chosen title for the magazine, right? Because men don't have a, a distinguishing title to announce whether they're married or not. And so it, it's a political act for a woman to refuse to be defined by her marital status, which means, you know, whether she, whether or not she belongs to a man because a boy or a man doesn't do that. So hence the title Ms. Um, in 1976, the first women only Passover Seder was held in Esther M. Bronner's New York City apartment and led by Bronner with 13 women attending, including Steinem. And here I have to comment about the disproportionately large number of Jewish women who have made such world-changing contributions to women's studies that they, like a lot of Jewish women on this reading list, mm -hmm. just on this podcast, we've had Rianne Eisler, Gerda Lerner, Betty Friedan, we're going to read Naomi Wolf, Peggy Orenstein, Rebecca Solnit's dad was Jewish. I'm just so amazed, actually, and impressed and grateful for the work of Jewish women, and it kind of makes me want to study what that's about. Like how <laughs> they're really disproportionately represented in women's studies. I think that's so interesting and cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, jumping ahead a little bit, in 1984, Steinem was arrested along with a number of members of Congress and civil rights activists for disorderly conduct outside the South African embassy while protesting against South African apartheid. Um, at the outset of the Gulf War in 1991, Steinem, along with prominent feminist Kate Millett and others, publicly opposed the invasion in the Middle East. Uh, during the Clarence Thomas sexual harassment scandal in 1991, Steinem was vocal in her support for Anita Hill. And she suggested that actually one day Hill herself would sit on the Supreme Court. That would be awesome. I'd love to see that happen, but hasn't yet. Um, she has spoken out or Steinem has spoken out against female gen genital cutting, among other issues. And interestingly, she's very anti-pornography, which she distinguishes from erotica, writing, quote, erotica is as different from pornography as love is from rape, as dignity is from humiliation, as partnership is from slavery, as pleasure is from pain, end quote. So Steinem's argument hinges on the distinction between reciprocity versus domination. And she says that pornography doesn't involve equal power or mutuality. A couple other interesting facts. Contrary to popular belief, Steinem did not coin the feminist slogan, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> um, when Time Magazine published an article attributing that saying to Steinem, she wrote a letter saying the phrase had been coined by Irina Dunn, which I laud Steinem for her intellectual honesty. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then another thing that was really cool um, that struck a chord with me is Steinem has frequently talked about the highbrow, inaccessible writing of feminist academic theorists. And um, one quote that reflects that frustration, Steinem has said, quote, nobody cares about feminist academic writing. <laughs> That's <laughs> careerism. These poor women in academia have to talk this silly language that nobody can understand in order to be accepted. But I recognize the fact that we have this ridiculous system of tenure, that the whole thrust of academia is one that values education, in my opinion, in inverse ratio to its usefulness. And what you write in 
and what you write in inverse relationship to its understandability, <laughs> end quote. So, um, yeah, she says, academics have to write and they have to say discourse, not talk. Knowledge that is not accessible is not helpful. And she thinks that it's important that women's experiences be given a narrative. So I thought that was great. That's kind of in line with Bell Hooks, whom we'll read later, who um, is just a brilliant scholar, but she like doesn't use footnotes and endnotes because she thinks it's off-putting and um, and inaccessible. So mm. I really appreciate that. I think it's really validating too, because sometimes when I'm reading high highly academic work. I'm like, am I the only one who doesn't understand what this means? <laughs> oh, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one. You're like, not the only one. <laughs> just say it. Just like say what you mean in regular words. Oh, dear. Okay. One last fact about Steinem. Steinem married once at the age of 66. Um, it was in the year 2000. and She married David Bale, the father of actor Christian Bale. Did you know that, Amy? I was like, what the heck? Did you I know didn't that? know I didn't know it was Christian Bale's dad. I just knew his name and he's an activist. That's oh, what I know. That's so cool. I didn't know that. Um the wedding was performed at the home of her friend Wilma Mankiller, who is the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Um actually it's really sad because uh David Bale and Gloria Steinem were only married for three years when he passed away of brain lymphoma um, at age 62. So that is sad. But um, uh, Steinem is still with us, and she's still vocal and active, and she lives in New York City. So that is a bit about Gloria Steinem. Um, one last thing by way of introduction, and then we'll get into the speech, is this. And I, I just wanted to note again where this speech comes in the historical timeline um, remember that we just read Polly Murray's work, Jane Crow and the Law, that article about Title VII in 1965. And then last week, we just discussed Francis Beale's article, Double Jeopardy to be Black and Female, which was published in 1969. And we talked a little bit about the civil rights movement and how it inspired women and trained women to um, start the women's movement. And it's similar to that pattern in the 19th century where the anti-slavery movement started the women's movement that led to the, you know, to women's right to vote in the 19th amendment. Um, in both cases in the 19th and the 20th century, it was a, it was a messy process where too frequently white women would talk about quote unquote women's rights, but what they meant was white women. And they didn't, really have women of color on their radar. And so before I read this speech, I thought like, oh, I'm not sure. I hope that Steinem as a, she's a Jewish woman, but considered a, a white woman in society. And I, I wondered if she would mention racism and include um, black and indigenous and women of color um, in her speech. And she did several times. And my understanding as I read more is that Steinem really has always had an inclusive all-encompassing vision for the feminist movement. Am I right in that, Amy, and what you've read? I think so. I think she truly did have that in her mind from the beginning. And when I've read more recent publications that are by her or about her, she continues to have a really broad outlook, uh, a very hopeful outlook. And Steinem highlights this right at the beginning of her speech when she says, quote, 
We are spending this time together considering the larger implications of a movement that some call feminist, but should more accurately be called humanist, a movement that is an integral part of rescuing this country from its old, expensive patterns of elitism, racism, and violence, end quote. Um, And I pulled that quote right out because I loved it. Um, Mm. I love that Steinem says feminism is really a humanist movement, gets everybody involved right from the beginning, and she connects gender discrimination to other forms of oppression and prejudice. Um, The word in this quote that really jumped out at me is expensive. Mm. And so I just wanted to talk about that for a minute. Um, our old patterns are really expensive and they're, I think they're expensive in a variety of ways. So I think the first thing you think people might think of is economically it's expensive. And that is true. There is great cost in discriminating against women and in limiting their options in the workforce. And, um, I learned about this in my sociology coursework. And through studies that I've read over the years by a whole host of organizations from the IMF to S&P Global. But I've also read about it over the years in lots of mainstream publications like Forbes, Bloomberg, Harvard Business Review has looked at it. So it's a well-studied issue. Uh, It's in our economy's best interest. When you look at all of these studies, they are saying the same thing. It's in our economy's best interest to encourage women to enter the workforce and then to provide them a safe and engaging work environment to increase retention rates. So we can't just invite them in. We also have to make it a safe place for growth and for, you know, camaraderie and teamwork. So it has to be the full package. I also believe that our old ways are expensive to our spirits. And what I mean by that is if a man is relegated to the workplace and a woman is relegated to the home, then really both genders are losing out. The either or model is just so restrictive. I mean, I can be either a homemaker or a marine biologist. I can be either an attorney or a caretaker. It's just, it's too confined. Hmm. When I was growing up, we'd listen to, on 8-track, Free to Be You and Me in the car during our family road trips. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And there was this song that I loved. I actually loved the whole, uh, the whole thing, all of Free to Be Mm -hmm. You and Me. But there was a song I loved called William Wants a Doll. And it was about this boy, William, who wanted a doll, and he kept asking for a doll, but that wasn't what he was supposed to want, and his parents were concerned. So he was supposed to want trains or a basketball, and so his parents would give him those things instead. Finally, his grandma asks him what he likes, and he tells her, hey, yeah, I like baseball, but I really want a doll. So William's grandma gives him a doll, and she explains to his parents that he wants to practice with the doll so that he can be a good father someday. 
He wants to be comfortable holding that doll and dressing that doll and all the rest of it. And I just remember thinking, yeah, William wants a baseball and a doll. Like, Mm. sure. So play with both. Mm-hmm. Do your sports and feed your doll. It's great. So meanwhile, I wanted to build with Legos in my room and shoot hoops with my friends at recess and come home and play with my baby sister after school. It's not an either or situation at all. Legos, basketball, babysitting, they all helped me in my parenting. And they all help me in my careers. So I really believe when we can find people, when we tell them where they go, we lose the richness of people and the most multifacetedness of humans. And I think we can crush people's spirits because we are incomplete if we have limited choices or no choices and we can't develop our various interests. Wow. I, this is making so much sense to me now. I, now I know like you have had, you really have had all these amazing careers and you've done so, such a variety of things. That's one thing that's so neat about you, Aim. And also you're one of the least judgmental people I know. Like you are not judgmental at all. I feel like you are so accepting of everyone. Um, and I, that's probably how you would have been no matter what, no matter your environment. But I think it's so cool that your parents played that tape, Free to Be You and Me. Like, I wonder if, you know, some of those early environmental influences do impact the people we become later. And that's that tape is kind of like not a typical soundtrack that a conservative religious family would have chosen in the 80s. Was that just who your parents were, kind of? Well, I didn't see that's the thing is I didn't know that that wasn't typical to me. That Mm -hmm. is typical. Mm -hmm. And I've never Mm -hmm. gone back and asked my mom and dad later, like, hey, why were you playing free to be you and me? Because (laughs) to me, (laughs) they've already answered the question simply by owning that eight track. And oh, yeah, the eight track, not not the cassette. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's so great. So good. (laughs) Yeah. That's yeah, so, so cool. My, I do have to say my parents, you know, over the years, especially when I uh, got into high school and college, I did realize they were unusually, well, I shouldn't say unusually, a lot of people are open-minded. They, I realized they were open-minded and they were slow to judge others. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom didn't gossip. And mm-hmm. that is something that I really admire. And she just, I I don't know. I think both my mom and dad just didn't judge or they kept those thoughts to themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. I would imagine they were just influenced by the families that they grew up in and maybe by both having experience living in big cities and also having the opportunity to be in minority positions sometimes Mm -hmm. um, may have helped them gain some perspective on how other people live. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I do love that though that you had that in going into your mind that um that William wanted a doll and that he wanted to play baseball and that that um yeah, that just expands the definitions that a kid is forming about what people's roles are in societies. What a great example. I love it. Mm-hmm. 
So the next part of Steinem's speech that I wanted to highlight is this one. Quote, the first problem for all of us, men and women, is not to learn, but to unlearn. We are filled with the popular wisdom of several centuries just past, and we are terrified to give it up. Patriotism means obedience. Age means wisdom. Woman means submission. Black means inferior. These are preconceptions embedded so deeply in our thinking that we honestly may not know that they are there. And I mentioned this, the unlearning. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a really big one. I think unlearning takes a tremendous amount of work, a lot of time, a lot of energy, and really a lot of self-awareness. Um, it's constant work. It's ongoing work. For me, I don't think the work will ever end. I think I'll be undoing and unlearning till the day I die. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is, you know, what I learned in all of my child development and psychology classes, we're sponges from day one. Like our brain is programmed to be picking up just everything. So we've already absorbed a great deal before we even know what learning means. That's It's just happening everywhere. It's happening at preschool, home, at church, in the grocery store, at the park. And for me now as an adult, it's like peeling an onion to unlearn all of these harmful stereotypes and conventions. So maybe I unlearn a couple really blatant, just obvious stereotypes. So I've peeled off the skin of the onion. But now I'm realizing there are all of these subtler biases and prejudices I have. And I'm just now realizing that those exist. And I peel those back and then I'm working on the next layer. So it's a work in progress for sure. Um, I was just thinking of my own experiences and something maybe I had to unlearn related to gender and patriarchy. And I would say one stereotype I had to unlearn was related to my place in the classroom. Um, that I wasn't capable of excelling or I shouldn't excel in certain subjects, that perhaps I was even in the way, and that I should play down my book smarts. Hmm. And I did not learn this in my childhood home. In my family of origin, developing one's mind and expanding your cultural and intellectual horizons was encouraged and praised, regardless of one's gender. Now, I learned it in school. And I took a lot of slack in middle and high school for being a quote unquote brain. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a lot of other terms thrown my way. But I vividly mm -hmm. remember times when I didn't raise my hand in my high school physics class or chemistry because I was tired of the heckling and I mm -hmm. didn't want to listen to another dumb blonde joke. Um, the boys didn't get taunted. Uh, it was just the girls at the top of the class. And the comments came from both peers and teachers. Really? And mm -hmm. teachers? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Oh, that's. Yeah, I would really say that sad. was more damaging because peers, I was always, you know, kind of, we're all learning and growing, right? But I, right. I have to say, what I remember more is the teachers' comments. Oh, 
Shoot. And it, it was few teachers. I think all you'd need is one. Yeah. Uh, because it, to me, it really, um, it stung. I guess that's the word I'd use. It stung. And um, the other thing I witnessed was that you just couldn't win as a girl. Mm. So girls got teased for being smart. And then they also got teased for being quote unquote airheads. And mm. the smart girls did seem to be more of a threat in the classroom. But I just saw girls kind of getting uh, getting made fun of for a variety of reasons in the classroom. So mm-hmm. a few of my high school teachers and really all, I would say almost all of my college professors assisted with my unlearning process around that. And my family of origin helped balance that out a great deal without even knowing it. Um, I think it would have had a bigger effect on me, except for I had all of these sisters, all of them much smarter than me. And as far as I could tell, they were just (laughs) completely unapologetic about the fact that they were dynamite students. You know, I mean, they were, they were proud of it. Mm. Um, My parents were and are very proud of our academic and professional achievements. And so I think that also tempered the effect as well. Um, And then I had this friend in college who was in the same major as me. We spent a lot of time together and she was just brimming with confidence. I mean, like it was dripping off of her and it was Hmm. not an overcompensation due to underlying insecurities. She was just genuinely confident, a very healthy confidence. Hmm. She was smart. And she owned it. And I just loved being around her. So between my sisters and that friend, I had these great examples encouraging me to use my intelligence to take it out into the world and make things better. And that it was not something to be ashamed of or to hide from other people. And that experience just over the years, it just really made me realize how critical it is for girls to have examples, you know, women working as professors, as CEOs, as judges, as congresswomen. They need to see those examples. They need to observe them and study them and emulate them. That mm-hmm. That's kind of what I took away from that unlearning. I love that. I think that's so powerful. And representation really, really does matter. It, like you said, that we're taking in just gazillions of data points ju- that we're not even conscious of. And so if if we see people like us, and that goes for all human beings, right? If we see people like us doing great and amazing things that we think like, I would like to do that, and we see it happening from people like us, it just gives us, it helps us envision ourselves as being able to do it too. So that's, that's absolutely awesome. Okay, one part that I really loved from this speech, and there were so many, this this mm-hmm. speech is so great. Um, one is this, I'll just read the quote. Quote, unfortunately, authorities who write textbooks are sometimes subject to the same popular wisdom as the rest of us. They gather their proof around it and end by becoming the theoreticians of the status quo. Using the most respectable of scholarly methods, for instance, English scientists proved definitively that the English were descended from the angels while the Irish were descended from the apes. 
It was beautifully done, complete with comparative skull measurements, and it was a rationale for the English domination of the Irish for more than a hundred years. I try to remember that when I'm reading Arthur Jensen's current and very impressive work on the limitation of black intelligence, or when I'm reading Lionel Tiger on the inability of women to act in groups. End quote. So that, I mean, that kind of follows on your topic of unlearning, right, Amy? And mm-hmm. um, that there are these um, intellectuals in society, and there still are, right, who are not aware of their biases that they've picked up from the world. And then they just, ha- that bias forms a nugget around which they bring in data to prove this point that, you know, in retrospect, a couple hundred years later, we look back and think, how could anyone have believed that? And yet everybody did, because especially if there's some, you know, recognized, respected figure who's touting this, you know, it's actually nonsense, but it seems legitimate at the time, then people believe Mm -hmm. it. And um, so I was thinking about, you know, certain people who are still doing this or certain texts. And one of them, people know I'm not a a fan of Jordan Peterson's um, thoughts on women. This is Jordan Peterson I've mentioned before, but he's really respected and really followed and listened to by lots of people, including some people I really love and respect. But I just feel like he repeats the same old stories from like ancient Greece that women are women are chaotic and women there aren't they aren't fit for certain jobs because and he'll use data like how women report more anxiety and so they aren't fit for certain jobs and that it's like the oldest trick in the book that you know people people who struggle against discrimination in a certain context. And so they're told that they don't belong there. And so then the people feel anxiety and then they're blamed for that anxiety and told Mm -hmm. again that they don't belong there because of their anxiety. And it's this vicious cycle that reminds me, Virginia Woolf talked a lot about that being taught or being told so many times that women can't write, women can't Mm -hmm. write. Um, And she finally, there was that part that we talked about on that episode where it was her friend saying like, well, women just are less intelligent And she's like, you are the one who's making it worse. Like, we can't function as artists when we're constantly being told that we can't do it. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Peterson is particularly hard for me because he just, like, holds on to these old archetypes. And, in fact, I just read an article by him in Time magazine where he says he was writing how much he hates the movie Frozen. And instead, he prefers Sleeping Beauty. Because literally said this, this is like recently, (laughs) obviously, because Frozen is not that old of a movie. And it's because the active conscious archetype is male and the unconscious archetype is female. So he likes Sleeping Beauty because that's that's the feminine role is to be asleep and to be awakened by a man and saved by a man. And in Frozen, the women are conscious, proactive characters, you know, who they love men and they have like great relationships with men, but they don't need to be saved by men. And he says that that's propaganda. <laughs> so I just like, I'm stunned. I'm stunned because I see Frozen as like that narrative is such progress. And he says it's propaganda. It's not my favorite. Well, I mean, we can see what he's comfortable with. It's it's revealing. Yes, I guess so. And, it, and that's what Steinem is exactly what she's describing, right? About how the English you know, said, oh, we, there's this ancient story that the English are descended from angels and the Irish are descended from apes. 
and they take and then they they you know use quote unquote data and like science to prove it based on their prejudices and then people believe it and it then it perpetuates those harmful harmful myths for a long time so anyway yeah. Yeah. i was going to ask you when you, when you're you know thinking about this writings that gather proof quote unquote proof around false ideas and then cause more harm can you think of anybody that comes to mind Yes, I can. I mean, the the first person to jump in my mind would be Freud. Oh, um, yes. You know, I learned a lot day. about Freud. I studied a lot of of uh, Freud's teachings in my psychology courses, and uh, he did a lot of harm with his ideas. And even though they're moving slowly out of favor, I mean, they're still embedded in all, I mean, just vastly widely embedded in our psychological uh, constructs, in our psychological, uh, cl in our clinical therapy. And it's still there. It's just mm -hmm. horrifying what he said mm -hmm. about women. And I know Steinem actually talks about him in, in this speech. She does. And in fact, I think I'm going to read just a couple things about Freud when we get to it later on, just because it's it's too important to, I mean, because yeah, we've, but we've talked about this before, Aim, that both of us, you read a lot more because you took so many more psychology classes. I just took like 101 classes, but I learned about Freud and never heard anything like any caveat to say that what we were learning wasn't just gospel truth. So we're going to get to Freud in just a second. So, yep. Um, yep. but yeah, that's a really important one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the next quote that I pulled out of the speech that I really like is this one. Quote, every day we see small, obvious truths that we had missed before. Our histories, for instance, have generally been written for and about white men. Inhabited countries were discovered when the first white male set foot there, and most of us learned more about any one European country than we did about Africa and Asia combined. Too many of us have been allowed from a good education to believe that everything from political power to scientific discovery was the province of white males. I don't know about Vassar, but at Smith, we learned almost nothing about women. So I've got to just say that I was stunned when I read that. Um, that is the moment in the speech where my jaw dropped. And there's a lot of stuff in here that, you know could make your jaw drop. But this one, I just came to a standstill. Here is Steinem. She is a student at a women's college, Smith, an institution created so that women could have access to higher education. And she is taught, quote, almost nothing, end quote, <laughs> about women. Amazing. That is astonishing to me. Yeah. So I went and looked up Smith's college. Just their history, and their first six presidents were men. In 1975, Smith inaugurated its first woman president, and since then, all of the presidents have been women. So I would be really curious to know, given the date of this speech, I would be really curious to know how that's changed. So how much time was and is devoted to learning about women's historical contributions about all facets of society 
at, at Smith College, how mm-hmm. much time is devoted to learning about women's historical contributions since 1975, when the women presidents started coming in? I would love to see a before and after. Some I'd, I'd like to see a graph of that. Steinem's college experience, it just demonstrates why a diverse faculty and board is important for institutions and a diverse library. So if we want to provide a balanced and honest education for all of the students, we have to provide representation because seeing is believing. Um, I attended college about 40 years after Steinem. And when I was thinking back on it, I found that I learned a lot about women in some courses and virtually nothing about women in others. And I have to say, I wasn't really super conscious of that or analyzing that while I was in the moment, while I was in college, but just looking back on it. Um, my field of study was dominated by women. So there were a lot of women in leadership roles and there was substantial research published by women. Um, my professors in psychology and sociology had quite a lot to say about women, um, uh, most of it very positive, and many of those professors were women themselves. I heard little to nothing about women in my general science and mathematics classes, and the same with my philosophy coursework. Hmm. Yeah, that's not surprising to me, but mm-hmm. <laughs> probably not surprising to you either. But that's that's great that you had so many women in some of your other classes. It's not surprising that I did not have. Mm. I had no women's education that I can think of. I did have some women professors, and I really liked them. And like you, I wasn't I wasn't really thinking of it at the time. I'm mm-hmm. um, I'm always interested, kind of taking the pulse and seeing what Lindsay says now that she's in college at BU, and um, and she says, I mean, she and even we've talked about this on other episodes too, looking at like Lucy's um, like U.S. history textbooks and even like European history textbooks. They're a little bit better. They're learning a little bit more about women than mm-hmm. I did. It's, but my daughters say, yeah, I think it sounds better than what you got, mom, but it's still not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's changing slowly, too slowly for my taste, but, um, but it's progress and I'll, I'll, take, I'll take it, I guess. Okay, so this leads into the part about Freud, actually, because Steinem is talking about what she did learn at Smith. As you just pointed out, she said she learned nearly nothing about women, but she says, quote, we knew a great deal more about the outdated male supremacist theories of Sigmund Freud than we did about societies in which women had equal responsibility or even ruled, end quote. Okay, so now we're going to be thinking back to Rian Eisler and Gerda Lerner that says like, well, ruled maybe is is a stretch in 1970. <laughs> they were, I think, very hopeful about, you know, archaeological digs that showed, you know, goddess paintings and goddess statues. And they were thinking, oh, maybe these are like matriarchies where women ruled everyone. And, you know, there's kind of mixed um, opinions about what that what those um, artifacts imply. But in any case, the point is they learned a ton about Freud, which you just said you did. And and I I know I did too. So I just want to throw this in here. Um, As we mentioned, Betty Friedan devoted a whole chapter to Freud in The Feminine Mystique. Mm -hmm. And Marta and I wanted to talk about Freud on that episode, but we didn't have time. So I want to just read some quotes here. 
Um, so about some who Freud was. He was publishing his work in the late 1800s through the 1930s. And his work hugely influenced the way people thought about their own lives and their own minds and other people. I would say, like you just said, Amy, I mean, all through the 20th century and is just barely starting to be unwound. Um, But he's still probably the face of psychology. If you ask people who is someone you think of with psychology, he's I would guess he's the one that comes up a lot for people. That's who I would say. Totally. That's because, like I said, I learned about him in high school and then in college. And no one ever said anything about why I shouldn't just believe every single thing that he wrote. It wasn't until graduate school that I had a professor that before we read Freud in our program that said, you know, you should be aware that Freud's um, views on women are really, really damaging and did a ton of damage to women. So anyway, I want to read a couple of quotes. So here's the first one. This is from The Feminine Mystique by Friedan. She Friedan writes, quote, The fact is that to Freud, even more than to the magazine edis- editors on Madison Avenue today, women were a strange, inferior, less-than-human species. He saw them as childlike dolls who existed in terms only of man's love to love man and serve his needs. It was the same kind of unconscious solipsism that made man for many centuries see the sun only as a bright object that revolved around the earth. Freud grew up with this attitude built in by his culture, not only the culture of Victorian Europe, but that Jewish culture in which men said the daily prayer, I thank thee, Lord, that thou hast not created me a woman. It was woman's nature to be ruled by man, and her sickness to envy him. So she's referring to Pina's envy there. Okay, and I'm just going to read two quotes, just kind of as represent, um, kind of representative of how Freud viewed women, because these are his private letters to his wife. Here's one juicy one. Quote, I know, after all, how sweet you are, how you can turn a house into paradise, how you will share in my interests, how gentle yet painstaking you will be. I will let you rule the house as much as you wish, and you will reward me with your sweet love and by rising above all those weaknesses for which women are so often despised. As as far as my activities allow, we shall read together what we want to learn, and I will initiate you into things which could not interest a girl as long as she is unfamiliar with her future companion and his occupation. End quote. Um, And then in another letter to his wife, he says, quote, you are far too soft, and this is something I have got to correct. You are my precious little woman, and even if you make a mistake, you are nonetheless so. But you know all this, my sweet child, end quote. My gosh. (laughs) Where do you even start? I mean, (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. And that's who's being taught still. As like, like you said, kind of the face of psychology and the, and kind of the standard of um, how to understand our own minds. And that's why it's so dangerous because it like, that's how we see ourselves. It's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's upsetting. Anyway, I just thought I would throw that in because Steinem mentions Freud and that he, he was a big deal in the 1960s still. Absolutely. Um, So. Oh, very much Okay. Okay, and then the next quote I wanted to say, this is just the quickest one because I just want to throw it in 
uh, Gloria Steinem says um, in the speech, quote, an equal rights amendment now up again before the Senate has been delayed by a male chauvinist Congress for 47 years, end quote. Okay, and then I already mentioned in the intro that in 1970, it had been 47 years. It still hasn't passed, so it's been 98 years now. And we will talk about the ERA on our next episode. Can't wait. So Steinem talks about myths that are still believed about women. The first being that women are biologically inferior to men. The second is that women are already being treated equally in society. She says they are not. Here's what she says. Quote, In many parts of the country, New York City, for instance, a woman has no legally guaranteed right to rent an apartment, buy a house, get accommodations in a hotel, or be served in a public restaurant. She can be refused simply because of her sex. In some states, women cannot own property and get longer jail sentences for the same crime. Women on welfare must routinely answer humiliating personal questions. Male welfare recipients do not. A woman is the last to be hired, the first to be fired. Equal pay for equal work is the exception. Equal chance for advancement, especially at upper levels or at any level with authority over men, is rare enough to be displayed in a museum. (laughs) It's a great quote. Mm. It is. Yeah. And, you know, it's really easy for me, Amy, to take all of the progress that I enjoy today. It's easy for me to take that for granted. Mm-hmm. I never had to think about whether or not I could go apply for an apartment when I got my first job. Um, I have many women, including Steinem and some men as well, to thank for my ability to have my own bank account and credit mm-hmm. card, for my right to rent my own apartment, to own property, to attain a job in various fields. I mean, it's not perfect, but there's more opportunities today than there was 40, 50 years ago for me to enter various fields. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I admire so much about Steinem is her desire to listen and empathize and to encourage peace and cooperation in our world. I think she likely would not agree with all of my beliefs, and I don't agree with all of her stances, but I have great confidence that she would be willing to listen to me and to try to understand what I believe and why I believe it. And I just feel like that is such a great lesson from her. Mm -hmm. Listening to one another And working to understand one another is, to me, a critical component of being a humanist. And I think is essential to the rebuilding process that needs to happen in cooperation with men. Mm, I absolutely agree. Absolutely. And being a humanist, as you say that, and, and as you said it in... Um, at the beginning of the episode too, that it's going to include everybody. And you said, I think what you said is it's going to be a slow process because if we really, you know, listening, really listening, try to, to try to hear each other, it is a slow process. And we, but we have to, because there's so many things that I have no idea what it feels like to be 
X, Y, or Z because I'm only the person that I am. And so I don't know what it feels like to walk in somebody else's shoes. And so we just have to pause and and listen to each other. I One thing I thought of, I'm, I'm reading the book Sister Outsider right now by Audre Lorde, mm-hmm. um, preparing for a future episode. And she keeps talking about the importance of actually opening, openly acknowledging our differences. Like you just said that you might not agree with Steinem, but you feel like she would listen to you and that um, we can learn each other. And Audre Lorde talks about this dialectic of opposing sides that sparks creativity. And that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen if we pretend to agree with each other when we actually don't. If we really do have disagreements or really different life experiences, we can't have those creative solutions if we just pretend we're the same. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't happen if we fight with each other, right? It only happens when peers really listen to each other, knowing their peers, knowing their equals with the intent to really understand. And I love your analogy of using those differences as a way to like move forward and build the house that's going to accommodate everybody. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I also love what you pointed out, Aim, about the um, just being grateful, right? Like hearing all the things that Steinem wasn't allowed to do because women couldn't do them and that we just walk through our lives not appreciating all of the freedoms we have that were very hard fought for by mm-hmm. yep. our four parents, you know, by people before us who fought for us and Um, We need to pause and be more grateful for that too, I think. Mm -hmm. The next part that I wanted to share is this quote. Steinem says, quote, the whole system reinforces this feeling of being a mere appendage. It's hard for a woman to realize just how full of self-doubt we become as a result, end quote. Mm -hmm. So that word appendage really stood out to me. And then it, it made me think back to the episode on Killing the Angel in the House by Wolf, where she, in the beginning of, of that episode, Rochelle and I talked about the Victorian cult of domesticity, where women were praised and like adored and idolized for being helpers, for being appendages, right? Always, yep. you know, orbiting men and making sure they were pleasing the men and being helpers and facilitators of the men's lives. But then interestingly, later in that same episode, Rochelle and I were just kind of chatting and saying how how frustrated we were because we were so full of self-doubt all the time. And we're like, why do we doubt ourselves so much? And we were talking about how in our in our cohort in grad school, like the men didn't seem to doubt themselves as much in, mm-hmm. in class, like making comments. And it's so funny for me looking back now with this lens with Steinem's quote in my mind, like it's because like you were just talking about the reason why like Amy mm-hmm. and Rochelle, like you didn't, you didn't see it. I think literally like being peripheral, being an appendage, like being told that you need to please that other person who is primary. I mean, maybe that is partly what's causing that self doubt. And so, especially, you know, Wolf is saying that a woman's job is to soothe and to flatter, like, don't make him mad, make sure you always please him. And, you know, that means that you're, you don't have real power of your own and sovereignty where you can count on like, if I do this, then I can count on, you know, more or less, these are the consequences of my own actions. I can't control anybody else's actions. Like, um, so I think it just creates anxiety if you're always at the mercy or the whim of somebody that you're trying to please. So absolutely. Well, you're a secondary citizen and, you know, it's this, this, person at the top of the heap that's making all of the decisions 
for you and about you. And mm. if they happen to not like what you're doing, I mean, that that is about self-worth if you're be, being given that message the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really you don't even have a place. like You don't have a place at the table and you don't really matter. Um, I mean, I did bring that up as kind of a feeling in school. Like, mm, am I right. really just in the way? So yes. should I just right. maybe leave? <laughs> oh, gosh. No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So the last quote that I wanted to discuss from Steinem's speech is this one. Quote, anthropologist Jeffrey Korer discovered that the few peaceful human tribes had a common characteristic. Sex roles were not polarized. Boys weren't taught that manhood depended on aggression. And girls weren't taught that womanhood depended on submission. End quote. Hmm. So that one just really brought up my favorite song from Free to Be You and Me, William. <laughs> um, I think of William wanting a doll. So let's give space for William to have a doll and to co-raise any children he has down the road. I think that when we allow men and women to work in partnership, we find more fluidity in family roles and more fulfillment too. If my husband and I have a relationship that is an equal partnership, then we discuss and decide together how we will each contribute to the relationship. And then that is not fixed. It's, it's fluid. It we can change over time. So maybe we start out both working in careers that we choose, and then we both help with housework and household errands. Then down the road, we revisit our roles, and now and again, we do some shuffling. Maybe down the road, we have some kids, and I decide I want to work in the home for a while, or maybe my husband decides he wants to do that. Maybe we decide to split it up 50-50 and both work part-time in our careers outside of the home. And I just think of the benefits that would have for society and for children. So in the workplace, we now have both this woman and this man, and they can both make contributions. So maybe the woman, she's maybe she'll come up with a key component needed to capture carbon. And maybe the man will develop a new negotiation technique that helps with nuclear arms agreements. Now, society can have access to both. And in the home, the kids have access to both moms and dads, natural talents and skill sets. So maybe dad has this great eye for art and tremendous patience and a big heart. Mm. And maybe mom is a mathematics whiz and she has this terrific sense of humor and, and very sharp wit. Well, now their kids can have access to all of these traits and skills. And that enriches their lives, and it enriches their parents' lives. And to both society's benefit and the family's benefit, these kids are learning that mom and dad can both actively participate in all aspects of parenting, that they both can contribute to the community outside of the home through a variety of means, including their careers. That's so powerful. Um, and it actually, if I can read one more quote, it actually re- reminds me of 
Um, just one last quote from the speech where Steinem says, quote, for those who still fear that women's liberation involves some loss of manhood, let me quote from the Black Panther Code. Certainly, if the fear with which they are being met is any standard, the Panthers are currently the most potent male symbol of all. In Service the Time, Bobby Seals writes, and now Steinem is quoting the Black Panther Code, quote, where there's a panther house, we try to live socialism. When there's cooking to be done, both brothers and sisters cook. Both wash the dishes. The sisters don't just serve and wait on the brothers. A lot of black nationalist organizations have the idea of relegating women to the role of serving their men, and they relate this to black manhood. But a real manhood is based on humanism and is not based on any form of oppression. End wow. quote. Wow. Isn't that great? I just want to post that everywhere, that quote where he says, real manhood is based on humanism and is not based on any form of oppression. Because, mm -hmm. And it accomplishes what you just talked about, Amy, which is enabling all human beings to be the fullest expressions of themselves. And then like you said, then it enriches humanity as well because we get the benefit of everybody's gifts, right? Mm -hmm. In the sciences, in the medical field, in teaching, like we all benefit from everybody being their best selves and not mm -hmm. having people just kind of trapped in, in boxes. Well, awesome. We're coming to the end then. And um, as we're at the end of the speech, uh, just one more thing is I want us to hear what a major takeaway is for you, Amy. Uh, I would say that Steinem actually sums it up beautifully when she says women's liberation really is men's liberation too. Uh, I think if we can let go of our old expensive patterns, we actually open up more options and more possibilities to our lives. We would have access to more people's creativity and ideas. I think it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, as a person who doesn't always love change, I can understand a reluctance to shake up the status quo. It is uncomfortable for me at times. But this is where I feel like we can emulate Steinem's example of being empathic and kind. If we respectfully listen to one another about fears that are preventing us from releasing those expensive patterns, we may be able to help one another move past these fears and create a more fulfilling and peaceful world. Mm, I just love that. I love that perspective and that, that positive, hopeful perspective. So I just want to leave that as the last word. I love it. Um, well, thanks again, Amy, so much for being here. I learned so much from this speech and from your perspective and just so enjoyed having you on, on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. It's only one sentence long, so you don't have anything to read this week. Um, but if you want to do some preparation, you could watch the FX series Mrs. America that we mentioned, and that will um, 
feature Gloria Steinem and also Phyllis Schlafly, whom my daughter Lindsay says she's going to do battle with in the afterlife. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so it's a it's actually really a great series, Mrs. America. Or if also if you're interested in learning more about the Equal Rights Amendment before our episode next week, you could watch um, John Oliver's show. He does an episode on the Equal Rights Amendment on June 9th, two thousand nineteen. So you can look that up, but you'll have to be okay with some. John Oliver language, there are some F-bombs. So, um, or if you don't want to um, do any prep at all, you could just look it up online and read this incredibly important 24-word text and then join us for the discussion of the Equal Rights Amendment next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.